fellow fiends. Welcome to another episode of Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces. I'm your host, Cassie Opea. Don't forget, you can find me every Friday with brand new episodes, brand new creepy and spooky content on your favorite podcast platform and or YouTube. So definitely check those out. Uh, Also, if you subscribe to the Patreon or Anchor.fm page, you get bonus episodes every other Tuesday. You get a 10% merchandise discount, which, by the way, is good for every order. It's not only good for, like, uh, your first order. It's not good for just specialty items. It is good on everything in the Wiccan Face store for every order. Um, You also get a thank you mention in the episodes, and you get a nice welcome swag box. So, um, if you're looking for ways to support without um, subscribing, I do have a Cash App, and I do have a Venmo, um, and I'll throw those up on the screen. Um, Also, just liking, sharing, commenting, following on social media, all the things that we do on a daily basis anyway, um, I... I mean, if you don't know, those actually help a lot, and they get the podcast seen, they get the name out there, they get it kind of thrown it higher up in the algorithm, which we all know that that algorithm is a force to be reckoned with. <laughs> so thank you for all that support as well. Um, you can support by uh, purchasing items from the merchandise store. Uh, don't forget the Creepy Candles, the Creepy Candles, well, that works. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces candle line in the Wiccan Face shop. And um, if you or anyone you know um, is um, a content creator or a business owner and you're looking for ways to spread the word on your uh, goodies, uh, definitely reach out to me. I have some budget-friendly packages and if you shoot me an email at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com I can send those over to you and we can partner up and uh, get you some ad space on the podcast. Um, So now that we've got all that rambling out of the way let's get on to this week's creepy case. So in July, um, July 27th of 1973 in New York Two teenagers from Brooklyn start their journey to attend one of the biggest rock concerts in history. A romantic, uh, fun, and ultimately life-changing getaway for them. Only it's not known if they ever actually made it. The night before, Thursday, July 26th, 16-year-old Mitchell Weiser left his photography job at Coney Island for the weekend and boarded a bus to meet up with 15-year-old Bonnie Bickwit at Camp Wellmet, where she worked as a parent's helper. Now, after breakfast, they loaded up with their backpacks, their sleeping bags, a little bit of cash in their pockets, and a homemade cardboard sign that read Watkins Glen. They were ready to hitchhike their way the 150 miles to Watkins Glen Grand Prix Raceway for the experience of a lifetime. But Mitchell and Bonnie disappeared that day, never to be heard from again. Now what happened to them still remains a mystery and their case has turned into the coldest of cold. So join me as I dive down the deepest of rabbit holes with this creepy case of Mitchell Weiser and Bonnie Bickwit. Mm-hmm. 
started researching this case. The first couple of resources I came across didn't really have much to them. It was a pretty basic story that two kids had disappeared either on their way to or on their way from the Summer Jam concert in 1973. Police initially brushed it off as two young teenagers getting caught up in the romance of running away and starting a new life together. So they did nothing. Because, of course. This actually seems to be a trend, and it's been a trend for a long time, and it's one of the most frustrating ones that there is. And now, note to anyone who ever has to report a friend or family member missing. Now, gods and goddesses forbid that you do, but you do not have to wait the 24 hours or longer to file the report. I know some police departments will tell you that you do, but there's no law about this. And you can actually make them take all of the information and file that report. Because here's the thing, the first 48 hours, and this is even said by police, are the most crucial. And the fact that they will, they themselves will make you wait almost that long, and sometimes even longer to file a report, is absolutely ridiculous to me. And I will stand on and die on this soapbox hill, TED talk, whatever you want to call it, rant, rave, however. Make them take the information. Now... The teenagers, <laughs> the teenagers left to attend Summer Jam, which was an amazing concert. Um, actually, what I can expect, I wasn't there. Um, but it featured the Grateful Dead, the Allman Brothers, and the band. Um, so they were pretty far from home, and maybe they just got wrapped up in the freedom, right? For years, police investigators, family, and friends of the couple have searched for them. We're actually coming up on the 50th anniversary of their disappearance, and their family is still pushing for this case to be opened and looked into. Actually, it hasn't been closed, but, you know, to, to shine new light and look into it. They have followed leads that led nowhere. They've sussed through numerous theories, some with quite a bit of clout and some without, but you never know. Um, but the case has gone unsolved. Now, recently, there has been some new information and a possible suspect linked to the teen's disappearance. Now, their families and friends are asking anyone, authorities, police officials, public officials, um, people who may have seen the kids that day or any day after, um, concert attenders, just anybody, um, which I guess you can't really speak for a group of that size, um, but there were over 600,000 attendees at this concert. And as far as I have found, Mitchell and Bonnie were the only ones to disappear or the only ones who have been reported to have disappeared. Now, ouch. <laughs> Now, experts say that this is one of the most unique and complicated cases because, first of all, as state, like I said, it's 50 years old. Um, people were coming and going from all over to see this concert. Um, you're asking people to recall memories from that long ago, and they, we can't really establish a strong timeline as no one really knows when or where along the way they went missing. Did they make it to the concert or did they disappear along um, 
their travels to? Did they go missing on their way home or did they disappear on their travels from? Now, it's also difficult because this was the 1970s. We didn't have the technology. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have Amber Alerts to quickly get their names and photos out across the country in minutes. Um, and of course, we didn't have the missing children on the back of uh, milk cartons because that wouldn't come about until the 1980s. And once again, the surprise that police brushed it off as just two hippie kids and they didn't even notify neighboring counties or any other police departments. Like they really did like nothing. And I'm just gonna keep harping on this. <laughs> but yeah, so six weeks after the teens went missing, the family was told that they should launch their own investigation and be their own public relations team. So I, the laziness and just outright refusal from police to help, like, it's just frustrating. Anyway, um, the family was basically on their own. Um, they did reach out to communes in the area. They reached out to cults. They reached out to religious uh, sects, 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 sectors. I don't know why that word wouldn't come out. And even Native American reservations across the country. They printed up thousands of flyers and sent them out all over. Now, I feel, I hate to say it, but if, you know, someone should have seen these kids somewhere if, you know, something hadn't happened. So let's actually talk about the teens, um, who they were or are. Um, Mitchell Weiser, he was a 16-year-old 11th grader at John Dewey High School. He was 5'7", uh, 140 pounds. He wore glasses and had shoulder-length hair, which his mother was not a fan of, <laughs> and he kept it pulled back in a low ponytail. He loved music, baseball, and his girlfriend, Bonnie Bickwit, who he actually met at school. Uh, they fell deeply in love and had become a large part of each other's lives over the past year that they had known each other. And they had ex actually even exchanged uh, wedding rings and referred to each other as husband and wife. Now, they were both described as gifted students with very bright futures ahead of them. And it actually strikes me as odd that they would just up and leave. Um, they both took school very seriously. They never missed school. Um, it's, I just don't understand why, when they both had scholarships and college coming up, why they would just up and leave. Now, Bonita, Bonnie, Biquit, was 4'11 and about 90 pounds with long brown hair and freckles. She was sweet, highly intelligent, strong-willed, and determined, and a free spirit who also loved music. Bonnie actually wasn't supposed to be at the concert that weekend. It was supposed to be a trip for Mitchell and his friend, Larry Marion. And actually, Larry um, had said that he was even the one who bought the tickets. However, uh, Larry's mom told him that she didn't want him going because she feared for his safety. Now, Mitchell's mom and his sister actually asked him not to go as well, but after it was basically, you know, I'm going, um, they offered him money so that he wouldn't have to hitchhike, but he refused to take it, which I get, 
at that age, you want to be independent. You want to do things on your own. You don't want help from your, you know, you don't want help from your parents. And I'm not saying it was any safer then, but hitchhiking was very common in the 1970s. So I'm sure that like the kids didn't think they were really going to be in any danger because it, it was a common occurrence. Um, a lot of people hitchhiked like everywhere. So Mitchell was very ethical, and some say that he was honest to a fault. So when, even when he took the bus uh, to Narrowsburg, where um, the camp that Bonnie was working uh, was located, he called his mom to let her know that he had arrived safely. And he told her and his sister that he would see them on Sunday when they got back into town after the concert. So this, along with actually like just getting an internship at his dream job as a photographer, um, it just doesn't strike me as someone who was planning to run off. And Bonnie did actually quit her job because they wouldn't approve the time off for the concert, but she left her paycheck and just about all of her belongings behind and told them that she'd be back to pick them up when, when she got back. Now, both teens came from very close and loving homes. They were well-respected and very well-connected in their community. They had college and scholarships ahead of them. Uh, but And Bonnie was actually even worried about her dad, who had a severe illness. And it was, like, something that she talked about a lot, um, about how, she, how worried she was. She actually didn't like leaving him for long periods of time, just in case she, he needed her or um, something happened to him. So I just, I baffled. But let's get into some of the details um, that, that are known about the case. So one, uh, the police never entered the teens, uh, I keep calling them teens, they never entered Mitchell or Bonnie's information into the National Crime Information Center database, which this would have uh, kept better track of details on the case. Um, they actually even lost the initial report, records, and statements from people and a witness list. Mm-hmm. Um, something else, in 1973, a truck driver claims that he picked the two teens up and dropped them off on Route 97, about 75 miles from Watkins Glen. So this was actually, let's see, 150 miles, yeah. So this was actually about halfway to their destination at this point. Um, he says that the last time he saw them, they were on the side of the road waiting, um, trying to find another car to come along and pick them up to take them. So um, in 1994, an officer actually admitted to not even attempting to work on the case, although it had been assigned to them, mm -hmm. uh, with 150 miles to travel. That means there's going to be countless drivers. Um, the festival of 600,000 attendees like, this was actually four times the amount that was even supposed to be there. They actually um, only really spaced it out for 150,000 people, but they had already sold, I think, um, when I was researching, it was like 120,000 or 130,000 tickets before 
the day of the show. So you can only imagine how many people were just showing up at random. And they even took the fences down at the Grand Prix Raceway to make room for all of these people. And it's just the photos that I saw were just crazy. Um, but still, so someone somewhere had to have seen these kids between Narrowsburg and Watkins Glen. Um, now, in 2000, the year 2000, uh, 27 years later, uh, someone came forward with a story about Mitchell and Bonnie. Now, Alan Smith of Providence, Rhode Island, claims that he had actually hitched a ride with them and witnessed their drowning. So he states that he and the two teenagers, Mitchell and Bonnie, got into an orange Volkswagen bus with Pennsylvania license plates. Okay. He claims to remember that Bonnie had a scarf on her head, which her family said she wore a lot. And he states that she talked a lot about camp, which, okay, that seems pretty legit. He says that this was the day after the concert and they were all on their way home. Now, he was 24 at this time. He claimed that he and the driver of the bus were really stoned, but the kids didn't partake. It was so hot that they had stopped off at a big river, either the Susquehanna or the Chemung. He isn't sure which one, but they just wanted to cool off a little bit. He said that while they were hanging out, he heard Bonnie scream and saw her fall into the water. He said that Mitchell jumped in after her to save her, but the two kids were pulled off by the current and around a bend. He said that the driver and he decided that there wasn't really anything they could do. Um, so they got in the bus and left. I fucking swear. Okay, so this dude, all right, is, or was, I should say, an athletic Navy veteran, and you don't even try to help these kids that you just watch fall into the water and basically, I mean, I don't want to say you watch them die because it's morbid and it's like, that's very sad, but you didn't even try to help them. Now, he said that they got back in the van and left. And at the turnoff that for Pennsylvania, he hopped out of the bus because he was going his separate way. Um, he claims that he didn't call to report it because he thought the driver was going to stop at the next phone and report what happened to the kids. Now, I think we've learned, um, report it. It doesn't matter if you think somebody else is going to report it. Actually, if multiple people are calling and reporting it, maybe something will get done in a more timely fashion. Now, did he think that he was going to get in trouble for being stoned? That's a small price to pay for saving two lives. And maybe even had you called and reported it, the cops or police or whoever would be like, oh, okay, well, we can overlook this fact. Thank you for that. But, like, this also is kind of weird, a weird story because no bodies have ever turned up. Um, I figured that, you know, it's just where the bodies. So while one investigator believed this story, 
Alan, though, couldn't identify the two kids after being shown photos, and he refused a polygraph test. Now, I know it's, you know, after, what, year 2000 from 1973, 27 years, I don't know why you would come forward with this story if you were lying, but at the same time, you've now refused a polygraph test. Now, the family is unwilling to accept this because, once again, there no bodies washed up, and when they went and searched the area, there were no bodies that they could find. And Alan even went searching with them, but every time they got to areas where there was like a bridge, he would tell them they weren't in the right area. And I get that it's probably a lot, um, a lot of ground to cover, but also in that time frame, it may not look exactly the same as it did before when you were there. Now, there's also a confession from a serial killer who is being held in custody at this time. But no one really believes his story because the serial killer was um, described as quite insane and police just didn't buy it. And I guess a lot of it um, also kind of uh, factors in that some of the details weren't adding up. Now, a few years after their disappearance, Bonnie's mother received a letter from a native reservation asking for a donation. And she felt that this was actually Bonnie's way of reaching out to her to let her know that she's alive and well. The two teenagers, Mitchell and Bonnie, were both very interested and wanted to um, be active in Native, Native American relations um, and affairs. So uh, she also wondered how else this random reservation would get her address. So maybe... Um, in August of that year, a woman called police and claimed to have seen the teenagers on a bus from Boston to Dover, New Hampshire. Um, but that lead never went anywhere as once again, people in those areas couldn't remember seeing these kids. Now, another major lead was in 2013, um, Detective Cyrus Barnes received a call from a woman in Florida. Now, she said that she lived in Wayne, New York at the time. Um, this is about 20 miles from Watkins Glen, so it's actually pretty close. Um, and I would imagine along the way, um, she told detectives that she thinks her father may have murdered Mitchell and Bonnie. Now, when she was 11 years old, she was with her father at a restaurant in town. Uh, she approached a table with a boy at it and asked his name, and he said Mitchell. And she says that he actually seemed kind of agitated, and uh, she gave some pretty detailed information that I couldn't really find, so that's probably something that just hasn't been released, um, or I just didn't find the right <laughs> article um, or resource. <laughs> But um, she claimed that her father and some other men had assaulted her and other children. Now, police confirmed that her father was actually a person of interest. But when they went and searched the two locations that she mentioned, they couldn't find anything. And they actually got uh, cadaver dogs and digging equipment and sonar equipment and... Um, 
there just was nothing to be found. And I get it's been how many years since 1973 to 2013. Um, I know that evidence, some evidence stays forever, some doesn't, but what what are you really hoping to find? Um, but her father actually passed away in 2022. And I'm guessing that that um, lead ended up dying out as well. Oh, not because he passed away, but um, never mind. So there was actually a psychic named Maurice Schickler, who he claims the kids are buried in a rock quarry. He said that he had a vision that a Vietnam veteran murdered Mitchell on a large rock and then murdered Bonnie a few days later, which I'm not accusing anyone. But if we remember, Alan from Rhode Island is a Navy veteran. Could he have possibly been in Vietnam? Um... Now, of course, with so much mystery surrounding this case, there are tons of theories. And I'll say it now and I'll say it at the end of the video. Um, if you have a theory, I want to hear it. So post it in the comments. Keep it respectful. Um, but so one of the theories is that they were murdered, um, but the person has either passed away um, or they're just keeping very tight-lipped, which is, uh, that's, it's hard to keep things like that to yourself. Um, now, if there were any witnesses, um, which it would be possible that there wouldn't be, because this happened out, I wouldn't say, like, in the wilderness, like, you know, just no civilization whatsoever, but there, there it would be easy to have no witnesses around. Um, and if there are witnesses, they're not talking either. Um, perhaps it was a complete accident. They were hitchhiking, so maybe sometime at night um, they were camping, or maybe they were walking and got attacked by a wild animal. Um, maybe something happened at the show. But I feel with so many people around, and something happened there, someone would have spoken up. Like, there's no way that would have been any kind of... Um, that would have been easy to cover up. Um, but also people from the show, like nobody came forward stating that they saw them there. So I'm still kind of leaning on that they never made it. Uh, now, uh, there's another one that says maybe one of them got hurt or died and the other one was just too scared to come home or felt guilty and couldn't face coming home. Um, maybe they were promised some kind of free new life and wanted to take advantage and they were murdered by a cult or a commune. Um, there's just so many possibilities, but without any bodies, there's actually no proof that the kids aren't still alive. I mean, they wouldn't be kids today, but that these, that Mitchell and Bonnie aren't still alive. Um, now there's a new detective in charge of the case in Sullivan County, who actually refuses to answer any calls for interviews and actually refuses to work with the family. So once again, mm -hmm. um, 
But let's take advantage of this being the 50th anniversary. Let's get this story circulating again. Let's get talking about it again. Maybe something, any piece of information, no matter how small or minuscule, maybe it'll maybe it'll spark something. Um, if you do have any information, like I said, no matter how small or minuscule you think it is, reach out to Sullivan County Police Department at 845-794-7100. But also, like I said, tell me below in the comments what you think happened to Mitchell and Bonnie. Uh, Do you think they were murdered? Do you think they ran off and just kind of decided to start a new life? Um, I'd love to hear any... um, other updates or any other information that I haven't stated here. I know this was quite the jumble of information, but it's just such a complex case. And it's just, there's more questions than answers. And there's all of these people coming forward, which I never really understood, like people who confess to things when they didn't do it, Um, but whatever. Um, neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so tell me down in the comments your thoughts. And uh, like I said, keep them respectful. These are, you know, people can, let's just be nice to each other. Um, but on that note, I will see you next crime. Creepy Cases and Spooky Spaces with Cassiopeia is a Pizza and Pigtails production. All episodes are researched, written, and edited by yours truly. You can find new episodes every Friday with bonus episodes coming out every other Tuesday. You can find the podcast on your favorite listening platform or now you can find it on YouTube as well. Don't forget to follow along on social media, creepycases.spookyspaces, for all future news, updates, and maybe some content that you won't find on the podcast. Also, be sure to subscribe so you can get access to bonus content, early access to content, and a couple of little thank you swag. If you'd like to contact me about appearing on a future episode, maybe you would like to suggest your own creepy case or spooky space, or maybe you'd also like to reach out about ad space, you can reach me directly at creepycases.spookyspaces at gmail.com, or feel free to reach out through those social media platforms as well. And as always, see you next crime.